Good evening, everyone. Um, The backdrop is a little different than usual tonight because it is March 14th, 2017, and tomorrow is the first performance of our Living Wisdom School play, and our sanctuary doubles as the theater. So that is the backdrop for play this year, which happens to be on the life of Yogananda. And so you can go to the Living Wisdom School Palo Alto website in about two months (laughs) and see the DVD version of it, or you can come if you happen to see this soon enough, but I don't know if you will. Okay, now, we are Conversations with Yogananda. We are in the middle of number uh, 224, and this is Swamiji talking about Master giving him the responsibility to guide the monks, and Swamiji talking about how that worked for him, and we've gotten up to a certain point in it. I, I don't know if I read the whole thing completely through last week or not, but I'll, I'll just read a few paragraphs and then we'll comment. Um, this was a very uh, significant event in Swami Kriyananda's life for a whole lot of reasons, not the least of which was it was an indication of the kind of uh, regard and expectation that Master had for him. To put him in charge of the monks was not a small thing. And also for Swamiji, and I talked a little bit about that last week, it was, you know, it was sort of like the first thing Master had really asked him to do, or one of the things, and he was intensely eager to take it on. But it was a, a project of overwhelming proportions, because in all the years that Master had been in America, as we talked about last week, um, the monks had never been organized. Master bought Mount Washington, had to pay the mortgage on it, and had to support everyone, and he just rented rooms. I mean, the, the, you know, you, you sort of see... 50 or 70 years later, you see everything all worked out, and you don't uh, realize, unless, unless you have an understanding of how things are accomplished, that it, it doesn't start like that. It starts with just making it happen in any way at all that you can make it happen, and that's how Master was. He was, just think about it, in 1920, what, 25, he bought Mount Washington in Los Angeles, um, there were no Indian swamis, or just a few. There was a few from the Ramakrishna order also in Los Angeles. He was quite a ph- phenomenon in America, traveling around the country, giving lectures. But while he was traveling around, he was sending money back to Mount Washington, and his boyhood friend, Dirananda, whom he'd brought from India to take care of it, um, who was a very charismatic and spiritually advanced person, uh, became enamored of many things and uh, misspent all the money. So Master's, he's there, he has to support this. And as I said last week, in India, the guru is supported by the disciples. In America, the guru supports the disciples. (laughs) I mean, he would lament that on many occasions. So he just had to figure out a way to make it work. And all those rooms were rent. So even though he was there to, obviously, to work with those who were willing to be worked with, and he was doing, acting on an extremely subtle level, attracting and bringing people together, there was also an enormous level of chaos that just, as Swami said, it was, it remained a hotel for a long time. People were checking in and checking out. So Swami comes, and by the time Swami's there, I mean, the autobiography was just published. You have to realize Master arrived in the U.S. in 1920, and he published the autobiography 26 years later. And during that time, Master did speak of himself, but not that much. I mean, not as much as they learned when that book would publish. And even the book doesn't tell you that much 
about his consciousness, but it tells you more. But Swami coming around that time really marked a shift because it was the, the beginning of the end of Master's life, really. And so he was putting things into position, including, uh, you know, indicating things for the future. Um, when uh, Roy Union Davis, for example, was just 18 years old, uh, Master authorized him to give Kriya and made him a minister. And it was, in a, in a sense, too early, but, but Master knew that he didn't have much more time and he needed to indicate where this man's future was going to be. Um, Swami Kriyananda, interestingly, at the end of his life, he became much more um, uh, blunt-spoken, might be the right word. And he, at one point when he was correcting someone somewhat more firmly and perhaps less sensitively than he might have done in the past, he, he apologized, or he said, he, he asked for understanding. He said, before I could wait a decade if necessary until just the right moment to say something. He said, but now I don't have that much time. And I really want to help you, so I have to just trust that you'll trust me instead of just moving really slowly and carefully. Um, so Master was at the end of his life and he knew he needed to put, put a few things in place because prior to that, and even, even during all of that, the, everyone's relationship was directly with Master. And there was really no, there was no point in anybody trying to actually be an intermediary between Master and anyone. And when you want to organize something, you have to organize it in tiers and you have to have certain people with responsibility and you have to distribute authority. But who, who, who would want to ask anyone else when Master was right there? And so that was also among the reasons why it was very difficult to put anything into order because Master didn't want intermediaries. He wanted it to be direct. But Swami also said much later that he felt that Master organized with magnetism rather than with system. And so even when he put Swami in charge, one of the reasons he was able to do that is because Swami was in tune with Master. And therefore, and as he writes in here, I'm not sure exactly when, where he says it, but he says Master really gave him very few specific suggestions, but he stayed in touch with him a great on it, and so it was like Master knew he could put his consciousness through Swamiji. And therefore, he really was doing it himself, and he really wasn't setting up any barriers because Swamiji was a, a clear channel. And that, of course, that's again, that's also, but that's also organizing by magnetism because he, he put someone in the position who had enough magnetic attunement that Master's magnetism wasn't interrupted throwing, flowing through him. It's very subtle. Um, so... Anyway, all of those things were happening, and this is what Swami is describing. I'm just going to start reading where I left off, not remembering clearly whether two weeks ago I read or not. Seeing my willingness to take seriously the responsibility that he'd given me, he responded with greater firmness in his talks with the monks. That's very interesting in itself, isn't it? Now that Master uh, Swamiji says in his book on leadership, if a leader knows he's going to lose, he should lose uh, certain, you, you should never assert a position you can't maintain. And when Master knew that there was nothing, you know, he, he couldn't ask anything of these monks because there was no context 
in which they would behave in certain ways. He had to be very judicious with the use of his authority because otherwise uh, you don't want to be perceived as someone who's, who just throws out ideas and nobody ever pays any attention. I mean, this is just a principle of leadership. I know on many occasions myself, I just, even if a position I knew might be valid, I knew that I had no chance of winning or enforcing it. And so you don't want to be perceived as a loser <laughs> or as ineffectual. So you just let it pass. And so Master knew there was no point in demanding certain behaviors of the men there because he himself wasn't going to be in a position to enforce it. And if they weren't enough in tune with it, he couldn't hold them to it. He had too many other things to take care of. But now that Kriyananda was there to constantly be the magnet, Master could be, as he says right here, much more firm with the monks. In other words, you know, have them live something that looked a little more like a monastic lifestyle. Swami writes in here that they were surprised that they, some of them would go out dancing on Saturday night and couldn't even think about why that was a contradiction. Because bear in mind, I mean, all this was completely new. They weren't Catholics. There was no hundred-year tradition. They were just living in this ashram. What, what, do, what did they know at that point? As nearly as I can tell, it was at this time that he began to insist earnestly on such hardships as not going downtown on a mere whim and living in other ways a more truly monastic way of life. I had seen too many men leave the ashram during that year of testing, 1950. And Master was you know, two years away from his departure, so he had to get it in order and grieved deeply over the fact I determined to do all, therefore, that was in my power to ensure a more coherent way of life for those who remained. I, I was struck by that word coherent. It was a very, Swami is so careful when he writes. What was he really trying to ensure for them? He doesn't say the word strict. He doesn't even say the word renunciate. He just says coherent. Just a life that made sense, that hung together, that wasn't just sort of random. You know, that, that, that was that was consistent all the way through. I can see Swami because I, I know how he would write. He would say that, you know, what was it I was really trying to create for them? And they would come up with the word coherent. Just uh, harmonious, integrated, uh, consistent with the ideals that they were trying to live. And, and it's just, you know, a choice of word like that also, you sort of, it helps those who are trying to do it. What am I actually trying to do here? Because sometimes we get uh, too much caught up on the superficial side of it. And we, and we have to ask, you know, what, what makes an integrated whole here? What am I really trying to create? I have thoughts about that in later ones. I don't know if we'll get to it tonight. A more coherent way of life for those who remained and for those who would come in the future. I instituted daily group meditations, weekly classes, and set in motion other rules, always insisting that I was doing so only on Master's behalf. That, of course, would have been very sensitive. Swamiji himself said he was junior not only in the ashram, but he was also junior sometimes by 20 or 30 years to the men he was trying to guide. One of the reasons Master had him grow a beard was so that he would look less like a boy. I mean, who knows what the real reasoning was, what other reasons, but one of the reasons was so that it would just give him some gravitas because he, he didn't have enough, <laughs> and that would help. Um, the master supported me in my efforts. Even so, the task proved somewhat difficult and not wholly popular. You can imagine <laughs> those are really understatements. 
It meant developing a way of life that was entirely different from the way everybody had been brought up. I'll never forget the months it took simply to get everyone to follow that basic rule, silence at mealtimes, which is one of the few things Master had suggested. You know, um, once again, you have to realize 1948, 49, 1950, this would have been, was not at all 2017. These things were just so little known. And Master came with his own power, but Master understated himself. That's why the autobiography of a yogi, even just really giving such a clear picture of discipleship and what it is to have a guru and what it means in the West, it was all so up for grabs. You know, just like anybody could just have their own interpretation. It was possible now for Master also to be more severe in the attitudes he was trying to implant in us. Here's a very interesting section. Never discuss those who leave, he told us. Don't even think about them. Think about the stronger ones, rather, who faithfully follow our way of life. Don't discuss the weak ones who have abandoned it. Even if you look upon some of them as your personal friends, never forget that God is your greatest friend. Be loyal above all to him. I'm going to read two more paragraphs before I comment. When Kumar, the young man you've read about in my autobiography, had to leave Sri Yukteswar's ashram, my guru became very withdrawn toward him. He had shown him special fondness, but when Kumar opted for worldly ways, he wouldn't even look at him anymore. I, Walter, realized from this statement that Sri Yukteswar had been exemplifying an important principle firmness in choosing what is right. The Master wanted us not to be wishy-washy in our choice of God. He didn't mean, however, we should be harsh toward anyone, for that was not his way and his not his teaching. He did want us, however, not to be specially sympathetic toward worldly attitudes or toward, toward those who embrace those attitudes, for in that sympathy we might expose ourselves to delusion. It's a very, um, this whole section, and it goes on, it goes on a lot longer. Um, that um, actual instruction, there's a few places in this book, and we come one of them after this, where Master said things that um, you wished he hadn't said in a certain way, or you, you have a desire to soften them. And Swamiji never did that. I remember once when Swami was writing an important paper for the litigation that we were involved in with Self-Realization Fellowship. And right in the middle of it, he was, he was arguing. It wasn't, it was for the lawyers, but not necessarily for the court. He spent a lot of time explaining things for the lawyers to get the principles in order and get, get clarity about exactly what we were supposed to be doing in terms of defending ourselves. It was consistent with Master's teachings. And then, of course, they would turn it into you know, that sort of uh, dehumanized, lifeless language that they have to use in court. But he was, he was, I don't remember now what the issue was, but he was going through some really important point, and then all of a sudden he threw in something Master said that totally contradicted it. And when he was sharing the paper, maybe it was a paper for the public, I don't really remember clearly. But I remember we said, Swamiji, of course, this undermines your complete argument. He says, yes, Master was not always consistent, but he said it. I mean, it was just like, it wasn't for Swami to edit Master's words for his own convenience, and he never did, or tone them down so that people would not be offended if Master said this. I mean, everything else Swami said, but Master contradicted it at one point, and there it is. 
And his Swami's interest in that case and in all cases was only to be absolutely loyal to what his guru wanted, period. So here we have Master talking about what is the right attitude to have toward those who have left the path. Now, in the conditions, and this is true for this comment, this particular section further on too, there's a distinction between changing your lifestyle and repudiating the spiritual path. And one of the things that Swami Kriyananda felt commissioned to do in the building of Ananda was to present a dedicated life that did not have to be a monastic life. Because if the only choice is monastic, there's only a few people who can really live that lifestyle. And many people who are profoundly sincere and deeply dedicated, that they can't live that lifestyle. And so it, it needs to be not such a stark choice, but just be able to move you know, from one life to the other, which is what Ananda has created. People can enter into the, a monastic a formal monastic life, but if it doesn't suit them, they can move over to the householder side or a more free single life, and there's no sense that you've left the path. You've just simply changed within that. And of course, that's enormously important to many of us who've made those shifts ourselves. It just, it makes all the difference. Um, just a second, what was the thought that I had there? And in SRF, it's interesting. Sri Yukteswar was married. Lahiri was married. Rajasi Janakananda was married. Gyanamata was married. Um, uh, Durgamata had been married. Um, so it's, it's, it's very interesting that it wasn't, you know, Dr. and Mrs. Lewis um, were both involved. So it was, there, was no, there was no definition of the spiritual path as having to be a monk or a nun. Um, however, what happened a lot of times is when people left the monastic life, they actually left the spiritual life. But still, what Swami was talking about, what Master is talking about right here, never talk about, don't think about those who leave. You know, don't talk about them. Don't, don't stay in touch with them. Don't be too sympathetic. You have to be firm in your decisions. And through the years with Ananda, I've been through that a lot of different times, and it's it's very subtle because on one hand, it's just as he said, you don't want to be harsh. And this instruction has been taken to my understanding in SRF that often they're very, very harsh with people who've changed. But Master was very sympathetic. It wasn't that he didn't have sympathy or support, but he was warning the disciples, if in your own mind, it's just just so casual. Oh, you now you've just gone off and you're living like a libertine and you've gone back to drinking on Saturday nights and you're living a licentious life. You know, oh, what difference does it make? You know, you'll, you'll work it out eventually. Because as soon as you start with thoughts like that, they become self-justifying. You have to also, in your own heart, um, it, that's why it's a, sort of a delicate balancing act. You have to understand. I remember a gentleman who, who had been a close friend of mine who, who left Ananda and went off to do something else. And he said to me, well, we'll still be close friends as we've always been. And I said, no, I don't think so. And I said, because our friendship has been based on our shared dedication. I mean, that's really the basis of why we're friends is because we have this unity of mind and spirit. And if you really, and in that case he did, if you just repudiate this life and go off and your interests and your energy go in directions that I have absolutely no interest in. 
you know, developing your business or rooting for your sports team or, you know, getting a new car and getting another new car. It's like, what's going to make us friends? I, I can certainly love you on the soul level, but why would I want to be there and do that? Why would I even want to pretend interest in it? And so that's sort of the line that Master's trying to draw here. He doesn't, he's not saying that we should be harsh, but we shouldn't, shouldn't be, he puts it, too sympathetic because it can just open us up. If it's perfectly fine for him to do it, why isn't it perfectly fine for me to do it? And the line between discrimination and judgment is what we're really talking about here. But also, when you see somebody doing something that you know is not going to ultimately fulfill them, you can say philosophically, it's karma, they have to work out, everybody has to follow their own path, and all of that's true. But nonetheless, the consequences are going to... It's right there. And, and you need to have the courage. You just need to have the courage to be able to say, oh well, you know, but not me. I, that's not what I want to do. Master said about Dirananda when he left, he said, well, he'll never find... This is, he's the one who betrayed Master, and Master every year sent him a... a crate of mangoes and every year he sent it back unopened and master said he'll never find God except through this instrument meaning himself but he said it would only take him three lifetimes to be liberated even though he betrayed him he didn't merely leave him he sued him in court he took his money he spoke against him you know it was he did a whole thing but he said it would only take him three lifetimes to work it out but if you sit around too much or try to maintain a relationship so that's what happens. Oh, I'll just come to your house and we'll watch TV together and, you know, we'll, we'll go do this and we'll go do that. It's, you have to be careful. He also says, just very simply, um, never forget that God is your greatest thing. When, when did he say here? And then he talks about Kumar also. When, when Sri Yukteswar, when Kumar turned away from Master, from Sri Yukteswar, um, it was also necessary in so many ways. It's like, there was nothing that Sri Yukteswar could give Kumar anymore. Swami doesn't make that point, but that also seems important to me. There was just nothing he could give him. Because what Sri Yukteswar had to give was the opportunity to grow closer to God. And when Kumar decided he, he picked up some of the evil habits of his upbringing, and he, Kumar was just on a different wavelength. So there was literally no energy that, that Master could give him. A woman told me a most interesting story once about Swami. Was it, I mean, she, she came to me with this. This was during the time when Ananda was under accusation and there were some, some really evil and ugly accusations going out against Swami. And she herself, let me think, was it? I think it was during that period of time. But in any case, she had, she had very much, I'm folding my arm, she had very much of a, uh, an attitude towards Swami, sort of like this, prove yourself to me. You know, it's, in retrospect, it's easier to understand him sometimes than it was when he was there. She had a very, prove yourself to me. Some people say you're, you know, a really fine person. Some people say you're not. Prove yourself to me. And there was this, Swami had been away for many months, and there was this big gathering at his uh, garden at the Crystal Hermitage. There were, you know, I don't know, 100, 150 people there. It was a substantial crowd and Swami was came in and he he was very in we were all very informal with him he was he was very informal and he was walking around and greeting people and she said to me she claimed this is how the story went 
she claimed that he walked right up to her and he, he was going toward her and then he just snubbed her and turned and went and talked to someone else. Now, I have people a lot of times over the years, people will tell me that Swami did something rude or unkind or snubbed them in a certain way, and especially when I worked as his secretary. And 99 out of 100 times, when I would bring it up to him, or I would say, or he would get a letter, so-and-so wrote a letter, you know, like this, he would say, you know, like, what? It, and it was just imaginary. It was just extreme self-consciousness that would read into something. So my inclination was to think that she'd imagined it. But when I actually listened to her and I asked her, I said, what were you thinking when he was coming toward you? And what she was basically thinking is what she always thought. <laughs> you know, like, you know, she's examining him to decide whether he's going to prove himself to you. I said, why would he talk to you? He had no need to prove himself to you. You know, he just is what he is. He's not trying to gather disciples. He lived his life in an extremely public and open way. And if you want what he has to give, then you open yourself to it. But he's not going to fight against your resistance. I never saw him fight against it. People didn't want what he had. He was just perfectly content in himself. I mean, he would be, he would completely dominate a room if people were interested. And if they weren't interested, he would be absolutely silent. I was in many situations with him where he never said a word because nobody in the room wanted what he had to say. He wasn't going to force them or they disputed him and then he wouldn't argue. But she was exactly that. I said, he'd been away for six months. All these people are happy to see him and you're standing there challenging him. I said, of course he turned his back on you. Why wouldn't he? And so was he being rude? I don't know. Well, I mean, of course, Sri Yukteswar turned away from Kumar. Kumar had turned away from Sri Yukteswar. But if, if Kumar, the point is, if Kumar had shown the slightest remorse, willingness, change, then Sri Yukteswar would have changed too. It wasn't like there was actual judgment there. He just discerned that there's nothing I can do for you anymore. Just like it says in the autobiography, Sri Yukteswar says, you know, with tears in his eyes, the world will have to be his guru now. I can no longer be his guru. And so it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting interplay, that's all I can say. We, we had a way at Ananda in the early years, it was actually, nobody ever planned it, but it often went this way. When somebody began to spin out, um, somebody would always sort of try to keep a long thread, you know, and, and that you would be, one or two people would manage to hold a friendship, but carefully, always carefully, because you just, you couldn't, you couldn't sacrifice your own values in the name of, oh, all, what's the phrase people use? Hold space for your point of view. You just can't, you can't do that because it, you can't do it in yourself. Is there any question on that? Because it's, it's a very subtle point and very important. Our world is less rigid. Ananda as a whole is less rigid. An urban center is much less rigid than a, 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 a country ashram, a non-residential world that we live in. We have to give people many, uh, a lot of space for a lot of realities. But that doesn't change the basic principles. Okay. As he says, um, we don't want to be specially sympathetic toward worldly attitudes. Oh, I know why you feel that way. Yes, going out and getting a million dollars will in fact make you happy. I remember this one man, he really wanted, this was in like 19, the early... 70s. This man really wanted to go to India. 
and uh, go, you know, go on a trip to India. And he was, Swamiji kept telling him, you're not going to find what you're looking for there. You'd do better to get more grounded here. But I want to, but I want He finally said, but I, uh, but I have such a desire to go, I won't be restless. And I'll be restless until I fulfill it. And then Swami turned to him. He said, you have millions of desires inside of you. If you start now trying to get rid of them by fulfilling them, there will never be an end to it. Just like that. It's very, I've hardly ever heard him speak like that. And the man did. He sailed off and got married, got a job, got a bunch of kids. And never really um, had the power that he was building before. I mean, it wasn't, there was no sin to what he did. But he was building a certain power and then let it pull him away. So you can understand it, but you don't want to be especially sympathetic to it. Just, okay, that's your choice. And then Master says, Why be open to negativity, he asked rhetorically. Those who left came here for the glamour of the spiritual life. They were attracted by what I call the romance of religion. When tests came, however, they fled. So he's also talking about a certain um, bigger attitude. They refused to follow our few simple rules while living here. There were many reasons why they fell. If you could see into their hearts, you would understand. That's saying a lot, isn't it? Swamiji once um, publicly, strongly corrected a man for actions that Swamiji felt were not appropriate. And uh, later, someone else took a took big issue with Swamiji for how, you know, you embarrassed him. Why did you speak to him like that? Swami had two responses. The first was, when it happens to you, you can worry about it. And the second was, he said, to explain to you why I responded to him that way, what I would have to tell you more about him than you have any right to know. It was a very interesting answer. And I've always remembered it. So here's what he says, if you could see in their hearts, you would understand. I remember once when somebody was walking down the street with a big boombox on their shoulder, I think. Remember, how, remember the time when people did that? I date myself by saying this, those big things. And uh, I'm not sure what exactly I commented, but I said something about what it was like. And Swami said to me, oh, if you could see their karma, just like that. I said something like, they seem like reasonable people. Oh, if you could see their karma, he said. Wow. So you just, you just don't know. And so Master would see that. But the other side of it is you see Master welcomed them. Even if he understood why they fell, he also was willing to give them. As long as they were sincerely trying, he would respond. And only when they closed the door to him did he send them on their way. The world must be your guru for now. Some of these things the Master may have said for my sake, and that you always have to take that into account. Whenever anybody tells me what Swami said about so-and-so, I said, who was in the room and what was the context? Because you have to know who he was talking to before you have any idea what, uh, what it actually meant. Because one, he could contradict himself depending on who he was talking to. And also he would just, he was, he, would, he was always aware of the karma in the room and he would respond to the karma. So some of these things the master may have said for my sake, for it caused me great suffering to see so many leave a way of life that to me 
seemed in every way right. So Master was starting to say to him, you know, it's not all your responsibility. If you could see who these people were, then you would realize that nothing you, nothing you did would have really made a difference. That's something that every um, person who endeavors to help people spiritually, you have to come to some point of balance between being willing to give your all and take as much responsibility as you can for helping people and then also completely recognizing that people have their own karma and there's nothing you can do about it. When Swamiji was, had a meeting once of those of us who were just starting out in the ministry, would have been the late 70s or the 80s, and uh, people were starting centers here and there, and, and there was just a lot of attrition. People would come in with so much enthusiasm, and then in a short period of time, they would vaporize. And you, you couldn't help but feel if you were the responsible person that somehow it was your doing. And there was, you know, that, was a, uh, that was a recipe for disaster and neuroses, and so he had to sort of try to deal with that. And he, first he said, it was, I remember it very vividly, he said, only a few people have lifelong spiritual karma. And that's uh, just, it, it, he said, most people just have a little and so, and he said, and they'll be totally enthusiastic and engaged during that time. But then he said, it's a bit like a straw fire. It'll burn hot, but then the fuel will just be gone. And they'll just go on to something else because they don't really have that destiny yet. And he said, you just can't take it personally when people's karma just moves them. Now, of course, we don't have to be passive uh, victims of fate. The way we respond makes a big difference. So it's a, a fine line, but nonetheless, I remember um, this man came to me. The things that people say, sometimes it's really quite fun. He came to me and he said, uh, many people find you inspiring, he said, but I don't. <laughs> I said, oh, you poor soul. That was years ago too, and I was practically the only one who did anything. Oh, I said, you poor man. I talk all the time. You have no choice. You have to listen to me all the time. It must be awful for you. <laughs> and I mean, what can I say? It's like I do the best I can, but I'm not responsible for your spiritual life merely because I'm in this position. You know? It's just, for, I suppose, fortunately also, you know, here in this environment, I'm the big voice, but I'm not the only choice you have. Maybe you can move. I mean, what can I say? You want to... Uh, the microphone. <laughs> yes, Karen. I'm thinking about the story, um, and I, I don't remember the details of it, but there was a man who was, um, he was, had an alcoholic life, and uh-huh. yet he was practicing Kriya, and so he would do a few Kriyas and have a drink, right? And, yeah. and back and forth like this. And Was this during the time of Master? Was it was he... during Master's life. It was the story about one of Master's direct disciples, as it's told. Uh-huh. And um, so, I, I mean, I just think about that, you know, that's so extraordinary that, that he was able to accept him and, and encourage him in his spiritual pursuits you know, even as he was struggling with this sure. other side of life. And that for us, um, you know, when we can't see someone's karma like that, uh, it's, 
I think it's really subtle. As you say, it's a very fine line to know, you know, when, when do we encourage someone uh, or when do we drop it? And, you know, the only thing I can think for myself is just to try to remain as much as possible without judgment. Well, you want to be without judgment, but not without discrimination. Because I hear people tr- just n- being inappropriate in the name of not being judgmental. That being judgmental is when you think ill of someone or you, you, you become harsh toward them. But to discriminate and realize that this person is just on a trajectory that I don't have the power to reverse and his company or her company pulls me down and threatens what's important to me. And, th- and that you have to have the discrimination and the humility to realize that I can't help you. Your, 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 your worldliness is bigger than my spirituality and my spirituality is too weak to expose itself to your worldliness. And, and those are, that's the discrimination that's extremely important. And, and to, the way you learn these things is by making mistakes. You, you go too far with someone and then you just realize that this is just not appropriate. They're just trying to take me to their world. They're not really interested in coming back to my world. And, you know, this, this phrase that I do here, you know, that you have to allow, you have to hear everybody, you have to give everybody a place, you have to, the phrase I hear is hold space. No, actually, you don't. You know, if they're really somewhere that you don't want to be, you need to separate them. The last thing you need to do is to hold your aura open to them. And, the, and, and sometimes you just, you, you do it very kindly. I mean, I remember people coming to me at different times, many different times, and they present issues to me but, you know, I, I, I'll think of a specific example not too long ago. This person presented this whole point of view to me. And um, it was a psychologically sound point of view. I mean, according to the psycho- psychological input, the counselor, the this, the this. I said, well, you know, if you want to be guided by that counselor, then that counselor is telling you exactly what to do. And I, I have nothing to say. You come to me. I, I have something else to say, but if you want that, that's yours. And the person thought about it for a minute and said, well, I am sitting in front of you and I do want your opinion. I said, well, I think that advice is terrible from a spiritual point of view. It's valid from if you want to strengthen your ego, and it's terrible if you want to overcome your ego. But I, that's not up to me to say. But I didn't hold space for where that person was going because it was utterly insincere of me to do so. But I wasn't judgmental. I was just very clear. It's perfectly valid if that's where you are. But don't ask me to endorse it. How could I? And that, you know, that's the balance point. But you can do that, and I have in my life done that very judgmentally. But over the last decades, I've had that beaten out of me. <laughs> and now I can be very completely impersonally supportive but I can't be sincere I mean I can't sincerely tell them that doesn't make any difference because I think it makes a huge difference and I was talking to someone the other day for example and I was asking them they were they were trying to figure out a very complicated you know someone in another country I was talking to and very very complicated situation and I just had to ask really carefully what do you really want you know do you really want um, do you now want, do you feel the need to get financial security? Do you want 
to be you want to use your education and be successful in this certain way do you you just do you burn to serve master's work you know like what do you really want because i'm not going to give you advice against where you're going so you make it clear to me what it is you want and then i can go and there was another man that uh, basically this was a very very good example I'd been counseling that person, this person for a long time, you know, a few years, along a certain trajectory based on a, a, a first-line commitment that um, service to master's work was the first priority. And then just somehow right in the middle of a certain conversation, the person made it very clear to me that no, actually it wasn't. Oh, I said. I just put my hands up and I said, well, everything I'm saying to you, it's none of it applies. But after that, we couldn't talk anymore because I didn't have anything to say about how to get established in the world and find a job and find a wife. I mean, I, I had nothing, absolutely nothing to say. And, but I didn't, I love the man just as much as I ever loved him, but I can't help him anymore. And nor am I going to, I, I can't get too close either because I can't be sincere. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Oh, show me your new car. Isn't that great? Look at the fabulous furniture you got. What a marvelous deal. I mean, it's not like you can't buy furniture and get a new car. We all do it. But there's a whole different, you know, orientation that gets there. Yes, Ekavir. Would that orientation be relevant to a parent-child relationship? Tell me what you mean by that. I mean, like helping the child. Right. Oh my goodness, yes. And you know that they're going in a at least what you think is a wrong direction. Well, also the issue is, <clears throat> as we had we had this thing we used to do at Ananda, which doesn't you can't really do this, which is that at all costs, at all costs, Swami had to preserve his relationship with people. So sometimes someone else would be the heavy. You know, I would deliver the message as it, but not from him, but just from me, in an effort to get the point across. Whereas Swami then would be supportive when they complained about what I said. <laughs> well, but it's but it's strategic, because you what, above all, what you don't want to lose is the trust and the closeness with your child. It's much more important that you remain a trusted father figure than that you get them to behave in any certain way. Because if you lose the relationship, you've lost everything forever. So it's a, it's a very fine line um, because it's an unconditional relationship you have to maintain unless they have, you know, merely to make a mistake and, you know, set themselves up for suffering. They haven't really betrayed you in any way. So it's not like you're justified in cutting them off. Do you know what I mean? If they, if they were truly treacherous to you and, and awful in certain ways, then you have to think of it differently. But if they're merely following their own karma and not being as bright as you would like them to be, the single most important thing for you to maintain is you as the safe haven. You know, Swamiji would, wouldn't, doesn't allow uh, people whose, whose children are, I think it's randomly the age of 18, but to become tiagis in the Nayaswami order. If you're raising children, you can't be a Tiagi, if you're raising young children. Um, because, and these are his exact words, or close to them, 
as a parent, you have to be, you have to have a more personal relationship with your children than is appropriate when you're a tiagi. You can't be that impersonal. It's not right to be that impersonal. And the other reason he put in in another context was your karma has to be subservient to theirs. Yeah. So you can't, you can't make promises about what you're going to do with your life because your karma has to be subservient to theirs. And so your, even your commitment to the spiritual path, I mean, that doesn't mean your commitment to God, but this is in the context of externals. You can't promise externals because they have to take precedence over you. So yeah, it's very, very tricky. It, but, but you can still know... See, there's a difference between what you may know inside yourself and also what you present. I mean, you may know inside yourself that your child is going down a disastrous route, but they need you to be in their corner cheering them on. It's, a, it's just very tricky. And you just don't know. They're not yours. As Swamiji said, they, every soul has its own destiny and its own karma. And you're, you just provided a physical vehicle for that soul to have its destiny and its karma. I mean, that's your relationship with them. As soon as their body dies or your body dies, this relationship as this in this form doesn't exist anymore. Your true relationship with them could continue. But this relationship is just based on, you know, the facility... Uh, facilitating their physical incarnation. But they're really just, there they are. How can I help you? What do you need? How can I help you? Without it, it's, I mean, I'm not a parent. I, the, the little I've touched it with my sister's son was enough because I just see how <gasps> exceedingly difficult it is to maintain any kind of I just how, how, how desperately you want to protect. I, I, and I have a parental relationship with an, a few people who are generationally could be my children. This one friend of mine, I said, you know, I have such a... Because I was being very generous to them, this couple. And I said, you know, I just have... I have such a desire to provide for you. I said, if I were, if I were wealthy, I would give you so much money. Oh, she said, too bad you're not. <laughs> But it's just that feeling of just, I can't, I can hardly, I have to restrain myself because it's not appropriate, plus I can't afford it. But it also, it's just like, you want to give them everything. So that's part of the enormous discipline of parenting, is to discriminate without judging, to maintain the relationship. I mean, it's just incredibly challenging. I, thank you, I've done it enough incarnations, I don't need to do it again. I'll just have one nephew, that's enough. <laughs> I mean, I, I admire anyone. That's why Master says um, the householder path is the higher path provided the devotee can keep that impersonal balance. Because to be able to hold that impersonal balance in that context uh, it, it takes enormous strength. Just enormous strength. And don't imagine for a minute it's not expected of you. See, Swamiji was such an incredible example. He was a perfect father. It's just you always knew that he was on your side. Even though he didn't always agree with you, you never doubted that he was on your side. And a lot of times when he didn't agree with you, he just didn't bother to tell you. Why tell you? Because he, I mean, there's a story in my book where this uh, person came to him and 
um, with these certain questions. And I knew in advance what the person was going to ask, and I knew that Swabi needed a little warning, so I called him and I said, so-and-so's coming, and they're going to talk to you about such-and-so. Later he said, I was so glad I had a little time to be ready. And he, he totally disapproved of what the person was going to do, totally, because he knew it would be emotionally disastrous for the person. And so it proved. But the person was so committed to the, the point of view that they just, even though normally they were more sensitive, they just completely blocked out what Swami said and sort of, well, what do you think, Swami? And Swami said, I bless you. And the person walked out of the room saying, he blesses what I'm going to do. No, no, that's not what he said. The editor wasn't listening. You know, the, I, I'm the editor, I heard it. The, the, he, he did not at all bless the action and it proved to be a disaster. But he blessed the person. And it was totally sincere because he wasn't afraid. Now here's the key. You see, he wasn't afraid for any of us to have our own lives. He wasn't afraid for us to learn by suffering. He would prefer to spare us because he loved us, but he wasn't afraid. And he didn't judge us for being idiots either. <laughs> you know, it's just, well, there you are. And, so, and that's what the parent has to do. They have to be not afraid and they have to not judge. That's how you preserve the relationship. Well, let's take a little bit of a break. So, did we have any questions or comments? Are we where we need to be? All right. So, I could envision only unhappiness ahead for those who had turned away, and I sorrowed for their sake. You have to realize, remember how desperate Swamiji was to come to Master and how extraordinarily, you know, completely, utterly devoted he was from the first moment. So, it, it was also Swami himself being trained, just in the way we're discussing, how much can you help people? Swami said, I know that not everybody in the world can get on the spiritual path, but it serves me to think if I just explain it well enough, they will. <laughs> and so he sort of, he, that, that motivated him. He was always looking for a new approach, you know, take it from the, from the angle of leadership, from children, from marriage, from art. If I just can explain it well enough from the right angle, everybody will get on this path. And so that was how he was. And, and so when he said Master was talking to him for his own sake, um, that was a very serious comment because it was extremely important training for Swamiji for, for him to come into a balance point this way because he has had such a big work and he's helped tens of thousands of people all over the world and you know many of them. In, and he, you know, he, he's been in personal contact with so many people. And so he really had to understand in many ways, you see, in, of all the monks in the room, it was Swami that really counted because the investment in Swami was the investment that was going to really make it happen. Whereas uh, this man passing through and that man passing through, his, the, their capacity to take from Master was so much less. And so the ma their Master would give them what they could take, but then he would give the energy where it would go. Swamiji even says in the path that even though his desire when he was with Master was to sit in the back and close his eyes, he says in, in there that when Master would talk, he tended to address his remarks directly at Swami. Because that, that was what counted. The others were secondary. So, 
I was reminded of the last part of Christ's life when the Bible says, many left and walked with him no more. From a higher point of view, this sifting process was necessary, for as we all knew, the Master expected soon to leave his physical body. The ranks, therefore, needed to stand firm. My own sorrow was not so much directed toward those who left as for our way of life. I was concerned above all with how to make it more magnetic. Um, Swami has talked about this fact here that Master knew after he left that there had to be unity and strength among the disciples. And you, you, couldn't, you, can't have, you couldn't leave someone there who was strong, but not strong in an attuned way. And so he had to make sure that many people exited so that it could go forward correctly. You know, I, I, I was talking to a, a, the mother of one of the children in our school just a, a few days ago, and she's extremely appropriately enthusiastic about what her child is receiving in our school. And she just lamented the, her only disappointment is that so few people really understand what we're doing and support what we're doing. And uh, I said, you know, it's the case. I, having been in, in, in the edge of, of all of this work for so many decades now, I said, I've just seen society move in, so far in the direction of what, where I started was so far on the lunatic fringe. You know, even just meditation and yoga and organic food and... You know, just all of that stuff. I've just watched a complete revolution in my lifetime. So I know the rest of it will come. And I said, the only thing that actually matters is that we remain true to our own ideals. Because if we actually do, to the best of our ability, what we've been assigned to do by God and gurus, and do it in the right vibration then the foundation will be solid. And it really doesn't matter how long it takes for the building to express. But if we corrupt it at the beginning, then it will never have magnetism and it will never, never become what it's meant to be. And so when a great master is leaving their body, like Christ, when he was leaving, when he knew his time was coming, he, he made it very difficult for those who were not completely clear to, to stay with him. Because heavens, they had hundreds of years, several hundred years of persecution and difficulty and marginalization and uh, assault and conflict. I mean, when he died, they were all Jews. But it, by the time that generation, the generation of disciples had passed, the Jews, as Jews, they had been expelled. I mean, that was huge for them to have been expelled from Judaism. And so they had to have... Uh, as uh, as disciples of Christ, they had to really know what they were doing in order to live through that and remain loyal to it and not become confused. But because they did, um, Christianity was able to become. I mean, it, it's been lost to the institution now, but nonetheless, the power of Christianity is still there. There's Padre Pio, there's Mother Teresa, there's you know, there's great saints in Christianity to this day because the first generations were absolutely loyal to it. They didn't, they didn't compromise. Swami said the, you know, the, the worst day was when Constantine made everyone a Christian, because from that point on you were just born into it. You didn't really have to choose it. And nobody challenged you, so you could just call yourself that, and it didn't make any difference anymore. 
And so we, we're in a position here with our responsibility for Master's work where, you know, we could be more popular, we could have more people coming, we still do our best, but it really doesn't make any difference as long as we're true. Yeah, but part of being true is to be expansive and creative and outgoing and open wide the door and think creatively and intelligently about how to serve because that's part of what being true is. If we, were, if we weren't, if we didn't follow in Swami's footsteps with the desire to serve, then we would also be corrupting it. But we also have to just be even-minded. If, we're, if our vibration is right, then there you have it. You do your best. God knows we don't really, as Swami said, we really don't want to be in tune with the society as it is now. Think how awful it would be if we were popular. That would mean we were in tune with what's going on right now. <laughs> and who would want to be in tune with this culture? <laughs> so being out of step with it is a compliment. <laughs> Swami said himself, whenever he found himself in anywhere near part of a popular fad, he would immediately repudiate it and move on because it's just, you just don't want to be there. So we'll see. Okay. These are just a few of the... These are a few... These are a few of the bleaker realities of the spiritual life. As Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. The bleaker realities of spiritual life... (laughs) I got kind of stuck on that. We must, as our guru told us, be tough in our decision to seek God alone. See, this is the difference between those who come for the romance. Master called it. When the first test comes, they're gone. Because there's a lot of romance to it, just the fun of it. But we have to be tough because God will test you. The master discussed this subject again after Boone's departure. He told me, When Boone went to Phoenix, he started living a dissolute life, sexually especially, if only he had married. That, I exclaimed, would have been a hundred times better. Well, the master mused, I consider everything evil that keeps one away from God. I don't mean that marriage itself is an evil, because he was responding to Swami saying, oh yes, marriage would have been wonderful. He said, well, I mean, meaning that it would have been better if the man had not left his calling in the first place. I consider everything evil that keeps one away from God. I don't mean that marriage itself is an evil. If it helps a spiritual seeker, it is a good thing. And so Master gives us gives the space for that. But if it takes one away from God, it's evil. So he neither worshipped it. I remember some friend uh, who came here for a while said to me at one point that they, she was beginning to suspect that we weren't I don't know what the phrase was, that we weren't in favor of family values or whatever it was. And I said, of course we are. And of course we believe in marriage, but not more than we believe in God. And more than we believe in God. You know, marriage, of course, should be honored. But your first responsibility is to God, that's all. And so everything just has to be weighed in that context. As Swami said, it's not always a victory to stay married for the, to the end of your life. But nor is it necessarily a good thing. Master said, as to quote him, Americans are so fickle. He said, they change gurus, jobs, homes, and wives, and husbands just at the drop of a hat. And so there's nothing uh, valid about that either. But it, inherently, it's what brings you to God that counts, not specifically what you do. And so we can't make anything of value other than God realization.
but you have to that has to be applied very carefully. Master says, evil is the absence of true joy. In Boone's case, the advantage to marrying would have been that it might have kept him from sinking deeper into a delusion. That would have been at least a relative good. I told him before he left that he should get married, Master said. Swamiji, Swamiji talks about this, and it goes on a little bit later, but you have to really understand what happens here, as specifically about that man whose name was Daniel Boone. Um, is that he began to be very dissolute. You know, he began to live like a libertine. I don't know if he started drinking or whatever, whatever else he did, but he, he really lost his moral center. And which is why Master said, look, you know, it, you just get married, have a, a family life, have a woman in your life, instead of just being dissolute, which is what he'd become. No commitment, no sense of responsibility, and dissipating his energy just wasn't a good plan. Um, but what happened when Swami... Now, I'm I'm pretty certain that we're talking about the same man, is that because he began to live in such a, a an undisciplined manner, he he began to live even more in an undisciplined manner, and he began to consider that it was all lost anyway. So why not? You know, just why not? And so it wasn't just a question of well, I'm not going to be a monk. It was a question that now that I've failed so completely, there's just no hope for me. And that's really what, what the, the danger is. That's when it really becomes uh, something to be very concerned about. And so that's why Master thought, well, you know, just move a little to the side instead of going so far that you feel that you've thrown... And when Swami tried to persuade him, because he saw him, because, you know, Swami cared about all these men tried to persuade him, you're never lost, Master's love is unconditional. But he was already, he was just so defeated by what had happened to him that he just couldn't, couldn't lift his eyes to imagine it. So it's, it gets, again, it gets very, very complicated. You know, this reminds me, this is unrelated but not entirely. I've told you all before, um, Pavani's father, Bill Yabrov, um, had psychic sight and he used to do a lot of he, he could just he could see he could relate to people in the astral world and he, he had a particular capacity to relate to people who had been somehow became trapped between the worlds and he would find and meet these souls in various places and often they had a physical location and so one of the things he did is he would go into a building or into a home or something and he would sometimes encounter disincarnate people be caught between the worlds who for some reason were in your physical space. How that actually worked, I never asked him. I mean, like, did they, why are they standing in my apartment? And he he came into the apartment that I was living in, and there were two places in the apartment that the energy always felt a little off to me. I didn't have that kind of sight. The way I described it was the energy, ironically, seems kind of dead there. (laughs) But just, you know, just something was funny. And in both places he said there were, he encountered these disincarnates. But one of them was an American Indian who had been uh, caught up in the genocide of his people and had had been a, a, a warrior in a last battle. And in that last battle, his, uh, his at least his daughter, was killed. And killed when he was trying to defend her. Before he was killed, his daughter was killed. He tried to save her, but he couldn't save her. So he died with just this agonizing sense 
of failure and despair over what had happened. So according to Bill, he was there on his horse, you know, in my apartment, which is the part where I just really don't know what to say. But so anyway, he was there. And he was just, he died in such a state of despair that he was just stuck in that state. And the irony of it, Bill said, was that the spirit of his daughter was also there trying to get his attention, trying to help him understand that it was fine. You know, it just had to happen. She, she took her death in the right way. He took her death in the wrong way. And so he was trapped. And, and what Bill did, he said, he managed to get the man to look up and see his daughter. And as soon as he saw her, that was the whole, that's what he needed. And so he immediately moved toward her. And as soon as he moved toward her, then the whole karma began to shift. Now whether, I mean, there's no reason. Bill was a man of absolute integrity and he was a college professor. There was nothing... Uh, uh, there was nothing flaky about him. So he, I, he wouldn't have made up such a story. As I said, I have no understanding of how he got there, but it's true. So this is what Master's talking about here also, is that even if you start in a path away from where you want to go, try not to go too far. And if you go too far, don't ever give up. That's what the real, that's what the real depressing part of it was. You know, I, I just wanted to comment about, you were saying about the man drinking, just because I was listening to a, a satsang that Swami gave maybe in the 80s or something like that. It was a time when the community was in a little bit of turmoil. and Swami made reference that time to the fact that everybody has to go through things and we just have to understand it. We have to, we have to evaluate each other on a long rhythm. And he spoke into the room and I happened to know who he was talking about, but it didn't matter. And he said, there, there's one of you, he said, and you know who you are. He said, maybe you're here tonight, because Swami said, I, he didn't wear his glasses. He said, so I can't, see, I can't really see everybody who's here. He always took his glasses off for satsang. He said, uh, but you know, this man came to his house absolutely dead drunk one night. Just totally, just completely, you know, beyond himself drunk and uh, kind of hung around at Swami's house for a while, and then Swami packed him off into the night. But the, the man, who, as I, because as Swami t- told me, I knew who it was, a very devoted person, really gave his whole life and served beautifully, but every once in a while the tension gets to be too much. And it's just like, these things happen. So an occasional, as Swami said on other occasions, a slip is not a fall. It only becomes a fall, even like Daniel Boone. It was, it was just a slip until he made it a fall. It was his attitude that made it a fall because, and that's in a couple of things later, he repudiated himself the spiritual path because he felt unworthy of it. And that's far worse than any dissipation. Dissipation just comes and goes. But if you lose hope, or faith in yourself, or faith in the guru, then you have a real problem. That takes much longer. You worship his mistake. There's this story about Sadhu Haridas, who was a a very famous yogi of a hundred years ago or so in India, who was so powerful, he, he, he could, I believe he was the one who could walk on water, who 
when the Christian missionaries, this the story about the Christian missionaries, and they were trying, he was saying to them, well, what's so special about, you know, Jesus? And they were on a boat somewhere, and they, they said, well, he could walk on water. And Sadhu Harida said, oh, and so he stepped off the boat and started walking on the water, and the boat followed him wherever he went. I mean, so he was a very powerful yogi. But at a certain point he became infatuated with a woman, left his ashram and went off to live with the woman for a while. And wow, like that. And then after a few years, he just realized his mistake and he came back. And resumed, and his disciples recognized also, and he just resumed and I believe as the story is told, he was liberated. Because he'd been, he'd been drawn away from what his true dharma was, but when he realized that it was a mistake, he just came back. I mean, marriage is not inherently wrong, but for him it was wrong. For him it was a delusion and he'd just been... But you just don't know. You don't know what it really looks like to finish. It's, it's very different than we may imagine it. Well, um, let me see if I can get through this last bit here. I mean, I guess I did. That's good. Okay. Any comments or questions? Um, perhaps this is a story you're referring to a woman who tried to commit suicide uh, and went for a time. She had an, an after, you know, an, uh, a death and return experience, but she went to hell rather than to heaven. And she saw all these other suicides there who had all were just in such a state of despair and they were just sitting. And she could tell that some of them had been sitting there a very long time. And then she said right above them, there were these beings of light trying to get their attention. Because there was no need for them to be that way, but that's the state of mind they were in. And they were there. But eventually everyone comes out of it because um, delusion is uh, transitory and liberation and light is eternal. Well, Swamiji says the reason they say hell is eternal because it feels like that when you're in it. <laughs> I mean, in no matter whether it's this world or the next world or any other world you can imagine, it feels eternal. When you fall into a state of despair, the nature of despair is that you forget that there's another reality. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in despair. If you can still remember there's another reality, you haven't. But when you do fall there, you just forget. And then you come out of it. Eventually. Yeah. Well, great souls. Okay, so we just did, we just finished number 224. That's all we did tonight. Two weeks on one, but that was a, a humdinger. Okay.